0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso And I'm Ann Friedman. On today's agenda, we're talking about music, history, and feminist memory with the writer and producer Jessica Hopper.
1: How's the book writing going? Uh, don't even pretend your brain isn't <laughs> fried too. Maybe your brain isn't fried too. Maybe you're maybe you're doing great. My brain definitely is on fire, but uh, you know, I'm just trying to conserve my energy.
0: So in in the interest of conserving energy, we have another amazing guest this week who is doing the hard thinking for us. I talked to the author, producer, and journalist Jessica Hopper, whose writing I read going back to like early days of blogging, like early internet days. And um, you will hear us talk about this in the interview. But one reason why I wanted to have her on the podcast is that she is... I think the only person in my life who is, was a total stranger to me, um, just someone whose work that I read and at a personal low point, I wrote her an out of the blue email. Like I said, total stranger and just like, said a bunch of personal stuff about my life like I have no idea this is not a behavior I condone this is like not something I have done before <laughs> or since I basically emotionally vomited into her inbox even though we had never met and had no relationship and she wrote me like you know a not overly belabored but like a very kind and considered email back and fast forward like 10 plus years We are now friends. And I don't know, I think about that moment a lot of like, look, like, did, did I have access to her or a right to kind of demand a response? Like, absolutely not. Do I think that everyone should be out here emotionally barfing into strangers inboxes? I do not. But it's kind of a sweet story that like worked out very well. And we are like,
1: I would, I would say I consider her someone to be a, a
0: kind of a colleague I've never worked with. Do you have those people
1: in your life? Yes, so many, so many, like, good people in my life. And I think that there is also just something about knowing that you, you know, you're, like, paddling, like, somewhere in the same, like, river, but you never see each other. That makes it, like, extra sweet. Parallel kayaks. (laughs) Yes, parallel (laughs) kayaks, but you never, but you never see each other. (laughs) (laughs)
0: um well if you are not familiar with her work uh jessica hopper is the author of the anthology the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic um amazing title love it and
1: uh, you gotta create your own mythology it's good trust me when i say like
0: that when i still remember the moment when i realized that's what she was calling this collection of her criticism and i was floored i was like this is so brilliant um She is also the author of the music memoir, Night Moves, Um, and you can hear her as the host and executive producer of season two of the KCRW podcast, Lost Notes, which is all about untold stories in music. And she's also currently at work on her forthcoming book, uh, No God But Herself, A Critical History of Women in American Music in 1975. Woo! Uh, Love it. So here's Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anne. Thank you
2: so much for having me.
0: So much. Um, I have to tell you that I was explaining to a friend last night how I knew you. She was asking.
2: How, how do we know each other?
0: Well, I <laughs> I sent you an email responding to like a personal post you had written on your blog that spoke to me. And it was, I went back and looked it up today in anticipation of this conversation. What
2: did I say? I remember you were writing to me asking for life advice, it was maybe in the middle of the night.
0: Jessica fix my life kind of an email.
2: <laughs> and
0: what did I tell you? Well, hang on. So before we <laughs> read it, though, I will tell you that I was explaining this and I was like, but you know, but so I really looked up to her for a long time and I still look up to her, but also we're friends and, and Beth was like, oh, so she's a pyro. Like a peer and a hero. And I was like, yes, she's a hero. I peer-o. love the word. A hero lies in you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever know you're Did my hero? You Did you ever know that you're my hero? And you are. <laughs> um, okay, hang on. I'm going to find this email. The gist of it was like, I wish I hadn't waited so long to really give it my all and try to be a writer. That was the gist of the section of your blog post. And I was feeling very much that way. Wow. And also I was feeling like... like um, Men in particular in my life were not supportive of that goal. And I think
2: that was another thing that you had mentioned. You had mentioned people who were supportive of that. Yeah, I think because also at that time, I think right, right maybe right around the time that you wrote me, I'd started dating the man that is now my husband and many of the people that I had Many makes it sound like there was a lot. There's just like a few central assholes. The men that I had dated before my husband were people who wanted to keep, keep my ambition small. It doesn't make any sense to me now as a full-grown dinosaur of 43, like young me being with dudes who were like, you know your vocabulary is intimidating to my friends. Like you got to like. <laughs> Sorry. shouldn't laugh it at down. that. But. No, but like, and I was like, no, no. But then I'm still with them for another year or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Because I still had so many sort of psychic on ramps for, for those bad feelings and those bad men into my life. Not bad men, people who at the time were not capable of being decent boyfriends and, I was no saint, but, you right. know. You can be bad for someone without being yes, bad exactly Um But that at that time, I think when you wrote to me, I had pretty recently had these revelations of like, oh, it can be other ways. Mm-hmm. I can be in partnership with someone who really sees me and, and kind of facilitates a kind of boldness in the world who sees that, that my ambition is not a threat to them right and i up until that point had really been with people like that i was so afraid of i think what i said in that note to an extent is like i was afraid of my own success i was afraid of my own power and i and i kind of used these relationships and these men to really keep that in check because i was so i think in some ways afraid of encountering who i was and all my <laughs> Raw glory <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, of my 20s, you know. And, and um you know, Matt and I have now been together like 14 years, something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, he has essentially given up parts of his career and some of his ambitions in order to facilitate my career because he thinks that's, like, important and he wouldn't really have it any other way. That was... When you wrote to me, I was at this point of really realizing what it meant to have a man that I loved hmm. reciprocate and show up for me.
0: There's this sense too of, which your reply to me really did, of like, I wasn't saying, Jessica, men aren't giving me permi- permission to do this thing. Will you give me permission to want and do this thing? But but that's what that's what you did. I mean, you kind of read between the lines that part of it was, if I'm sending an email to a stranger saying, uh, I don't really feel like I can grab this thing that I have always wanted for myself. And I don't feel like certain people in my life, some people are encouraging me and other people aren't. And just doubling down on that, like, yeah, yeah, you know, like you can do it. And I really do think of it all the time when I get emails from strangers. Like I feel very far from the person who sent you that email, which is in some ways great. But also I don't really want to, I don't want to lose touch with that either of like, it, it does sometimes take an outside affirmation.
2: You know, one of the things that I think about whenever I get an email from a stranger and sometimes people, you know, want something very particular and I think about how when I was like 16 years old and I went to go interview Fugazi (laughs) and somebody at Discord Records said, I was saying like, I I get all this mail and I can't really write back to it and there's basically like an audible gasp of like, well, if people put in the effort to write to you, you cannot not write back to them. And like, basically, this is the law. And so, I still think about that because I also think about all the people that I've written letters to over the years, and people who I've made sometimes strange and desperate overtures <laughs> <laughs> to myself. And I even, I even thought about it this morning because I was hanging out with my friend Alex Papadimas. When I was pregnant with my son, and I was so uh, my my first son, and and I was so desperate for dollar or two dollar a word work because I was pregnant and just couldn't hustle to the degree that I was, you know, I was supporting my husband who's still in school and a kid, and like you know, on nine cents a word like weekly rates, and I had been asking men that I knew for like. Can you help me with an introduction to somebody at GQ Mm -hmm. or like wherever these places where even like a small, some small front of book interview with some nominally famous person or a listicle literally is my rent. And no one would share their contact with me. And then I wrote to Alex, who I like maybe just barely knew. Mm -hmm. And he told me later, he was like, you just seemed kind of desperate in the email. And he wrote me back this super long, detailed email about how to pitch. The New York Times Magazine, mm-hmm. and who to pitch at GQ for what part, and what they look for, and he was somebody who was doing cover stories for them, and you know all this stuff, and it was like he was like the good man that unlocked that <laughs> that world. But I always think about how somebody just taking the time to reply to an email from a so sort of desperate <laughs> pregnant lady <laughs> about how to get in GQ from a book. I mean, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. It changed the course of my life for two years. I could support my family because I started just doing one or two pieces every couple weeks. And it was like the difference between writing for hours and hours and hours and hours and doing something that was like small and paid a half decent wage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know, not to be like, just just trying to pay it forward and
0: <laughs> no but i mean but i think i have intuited that and i really do think about i mean i couldn't remember the substance of this exchange till i went to look for it today but i did remember it was highly emotional and i didn't know you and i had no business sending you a highly emotional email and expecting a reply and you sent a very gracious one so i think that i think about that when i take time and reply to people now and sometimes i literally do when they're like thank you so much i'm like Please reply to other emails that you get like this in the future. <laughs> Sometimes I actually just say that. We more recently had an email exchange about the shocking gaps in both of our knowledge of shit we should know about women's output in the world, like women artists or women thinkers, and um, our progenitors. Yes, I can't. I can't remember for sure, but I think the inspiration for that conversation was this podcast, The Last Bohemians.
2: Ah. Mm-hmm. I really savored that. Like I, I started powering through a couple of these episodes and they're really, um, I'd really encourage any of, anyone listening, if you enjoy this podcast, you will also enjoy The Last Bohemians. Yeah, please describe uh, the premise. So it's it's basically these edited interviews with women who I think are primarily 60s, 70s, 80s. I think the oldest person on the show is like 92. And they are women who were, most of them are, are sort of at the vanguard of doing some interesting and some of them just led really creative, kind of strange lives. And the interview sort of follows them through these, you know, the detours and contours of their artistic or or personal lives, but really how they came up and how they became who they were and not so much as achievements and failures and things like that, but it's really kind of like this is who I am. And some of them are like, you know, women talking about their sexual (laughs) conquests, famous men in the 60s and then other ones about you know what was like artistically fulfilling to them and what their artistic practice is like in their 80s and I was like oh my god I'm so hungry for this and Mm -hmm. I also I'm so aware of being so divorced from a lot of these just histories and narratives and and the work of these women because I think there's so many ways that culture I think really proactively works to cut us off from those histories and those narratives because it keeps us sort of in these spaces of like reinventing, reinventing the wheel, being detached from historical activism. We're like, how do I locate like the lineage of what I'm doing culturally, personally, whoever? And just forever having to dig for those people. Mm-hmm. Like people who are not going to be remembered in a way that is kind of like algorithmically served up to us by culture. Sure. Or institutionally protected with oh like God, retrospectives
0: yeah. or, yeah. you know, even the kind of like venerating magazine profile. Yeah, of like, these are people yeah. who are not,
2: we're just not being served content on women who are in their 80s. Like, <laughs> the market and, is thirsty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the book that I'm researching right now most of the women who are the subjects of it are in their 70s now. And I feel a kind of desperation for their stories, but particularly told in their own voice, because so much of what I even find in my research, 95% of it is cis white men who were the gatekeepers of music criticism and cultural you know proclamation on high of who gets to matter and this is what this work means Mm -hmm. and so you kind of have to i feel like i'm constantly sort of like trying to claw back that filter and find these women talking about their own art and own process and no one thought to ask them about it a lot of the time so Mm -hmm. it's i'm excavating
0: it's one reason why we don't really interview men it's like, you know, like a real time, like a living document of women talking about the things that they're making and doing right now.
2: yeah, it's still such a radical thing. And even when you read um, do you know this book, a jury of her peers? Yes, I think about that book a lot. It basically starts, you know, at the founding of America, essentially, who were the women who were allowed to publish and what did they write about and what was their deal? and just sort of moves forward. Um and so it's a history of women writing in America for about four hundred years. and you just see, how recently it was that women were able to put their own names on books. And you're like, whoa, just the simple fact of me publishing a book is like, this is still a big deal. Like in the broader scope of the, of this history and, and reading books like that for me have been really nutritive. But also sometimes as, you know, I'm someone who goes to the library, and the bookstore, and I'm forever. This is the thing I do when I feel stuck in my writing is I count how many people are not, who, in, the, in the music book section, I count the people who aren't white male authors writing about canonical white male artists. And it's like, you know, like on a, like a good bookstore, that's like maybe like seven or eight books that aren't that and that motivates me to be like, all right, just keep moving, get your shit together, come on, like, not to say that like my work is part of like some grand solution, but it it helps me kind of keep broader perspective on what I'm doing to just keep moving. Well,
0: it. I'll say your book is part of a grand solution. Okay. I'm allowed to say that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, and I I want you. I feel like for people who are listening and don't know, you should talk about the title of your collection, because it's directly relevant to this (laughs) experience of looking for and not finding certain people
2: represented. In 2015, my second book came out, and it is an anthology of about 15 years of primarily my criticism called The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. And even though it is not exactly, that is not entirely true, I kept being told when I wanted to make this book and I had talked about it for a couple of years of like, I want to do an anthology of my work. I've been writing for a really long time and I have all this work that's sort of scattered to the wind and I feel like I want to put it together because I read books by men that are that all the fucking time. And, <laughs> um, and I kept being told, well, there's no precedent. Like, Chuck Klosterman is not a precedent or bob They're like look, we've been making this like, mistake a long time and we'd like to keep <laughs> please making <Cuba> it <laughs> letting us iterate it into infinity um like i don't count in the same realm of this and after a couple of years of that i was so suitably pissed off by it but also going like yes these works do exist and they're by you know women in the uk in the 80s and you know other people who've come before me that have done this sort of work and you're By saying there's no precedent, you're also erasing their work. So the title was really sort of like, it was at once like a fuck you. Mm -hmm. And it was also, I mean, I really just didn't want anybody who was coming after me, coming up alongside me to be fed this same line of shit about why their work couldn't exist. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Maybe this is a tool to somebody, but also to just be like, literally every single month two books on the beatles and bob dylan come out over and over again and like i mean those bands are perfectly fine but <laughs> that's not the issue <laughs> this is not the issue please don't get in my mentions about the validity of bob dylan's work cuz i'm not going to fight you on that but and just being like there's all these women whose work has been anthologized there's all these different people whose work and of and their voices has never been Collected that they are not considered to have expertise or their work is just erased. And like those women and a lot of the critics and cultural critics who were considered sort of marginal were the people that shaped my voice. And like who do some shout outs. In particular, there was a woman named Terry Sutton who was the pop critic at the weekly paper when I was a teenager. And I thought because oh we have this pop critic here at City Pages who's a woman who's writing feminist criticism, that must mean that like every city has one. And then I found out later she was like literally the only one
0: at the time. <laughs> Everyone uh, did not have a Terry. No, <laughs> no, it was like Ann
2: Powers and Terry Sutton were yeah. like the the and and I still think about things that she wrote that I read as a teenager that made like a huge impression on me. You know her rejecting certain canonical dudes that have been sort of shoved down our throats and then instead, you know, I was being like, fuck the Rolling Stones, Marian Faithful, people, you know? <laughs> and like, I was like, yeah, this is it, you know? And it was sort of the first time that I was really encountering work that centered um, people who otherwise people said, "Oh, you know, Marion Faithful is just like a groupie that lucked into this record or mm. whatever. And instead saying like, here, no, this person's doing it this is this is the real art going on here. And would this other band even exist if it wasn't for these women? And I was like, yes! You know, and it was such a revelation to me. And then it sort of, um, also there was a book called Rock She Wrote that was uh, Ann Powers and Evelyn McDonald, I believe were both the editors on that. And my mom worked at the newspaper and brought me home like a galley of that book and I was like oh there's like a whole lineage of women doing this thing that I'm really interested in and at the time I was like just a teenage rat girl doing a fanzine in my bedroom on my typewriter and I was like oh this is like a thing women do and I didn't realize like you know there's only like two books like that ever.
0: Well, but also though, even knowing that there's one or two suddenly puts this thing that you're doing in your bedroom on your own in contact with a thing that is bigger. And mm-hmm. I think that is really important in terms of seeing it as important. Like it's it's very like understanding
2: that this is a thing that respected professionals do. And in that the world. there's a history of it going yeah. back to the seventies where I was like, oh, those books and those people function to say, You know, we've been here all along, Mm -hmm. but I think there hasn't been enough opportunity for those folks to continue to be celebrated, to be rediscovered, to have their voices sort of come in from the margins.
0: Well, I wanted to ask if this impulse kind of against erasure, if there's a link directly between that and this, Book project that you're working on right now?
2: Oh, I think for sure. So the the book that I'm working on right now is called "No God But Herself," and it's about women in music in 1975. I and get a chill just hearing that title. <laughs> uh, it, it is 1975 is the year that a lot of women artists start to have charting hits and success of uh, various definition with songs and material that they wrote cold from their own lives. They are Mm -hmm. singing it themselves. Could you throw out a few examples? So in 1975, we have landmark work from LaBelle, Minnie Riperton, Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac, which first two charting singles off of that are, you know, written by the women in that band. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is a landmark year for Joni Mitchell she puts out this record Hissing of Summer Lawns which I think is her at like the absolute height Ugh. of her power and she makes the entire record you know in this sort of like furious attempt to show people this is my genius stop crediting men with this and she just goes all in um, but also it is a year that gives us Shaka Khan and Donna Summer and full body chill and, and <laughs> And the year, you know, ends with Patti Smith horses. And oh so God. really for, for me, it was like, you know, LaBelle, Fleetwood Mac, Jenny Mitchell, Patti, Shaka Connor, some of my, I mean, those are like my big ones. Canonical. They are, yeah, they are like people that I have their pictures framed and cheap Ikea frames in my office. <laughs> um, but for a while, I was just sort of like, how do I tie these people together? Because mm. these are the things I want to write about. Mm. And at some point, I was I was reading this kind of whatever book about Fleetwood Mac, and it talked about 1975, what that year was for the band, and about how Over My Head became um, the first top 20 rock song written by the woman who sang it. And I was like, no, that's too late. I mean, part of that is also because the rock charts were pretty new. Rock as a uh-huh. format was pretty new. But I was like... Wait a minute. And it just kind of skewed so much of my timeline. I, I just realized I needed to interrogate the timeline of women in rock and start finding maybe some history that was different than than what I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. And And I found just you know I mean also 1975 gives us, gives us Betty Davis mm-hmm. it is also like the talent of the height of the Carpenters and they're making their last big record in the studio at the same time as Joni Mitchell is recording Sing of Summer Lawns and I just like imagine my brain sort of like went on fire and I was like Karen and Joni on either side of a wall like they're the two biggest perfectionists in music right in that moment like <laughs> I'm so happy you're writing this book thank you <laughs> I am too. The thing that kicked my ass into finally getting my proposal done was I was looking up an email address of someone. As we keep going back to these like ancient emails, I, the archive, <laughs> dude, never truly flesh out the Gmail. I know some people are Inbox Zero, but like <laughs> you know, it is my most valuable.
0: I truly think about my Gmail and all the data therein is my most valuable, like my most valuable possession. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so I went back to this email. Maybe 2012, 2013, that I'd written there. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get around to my Joni, like 70s lady book when I have time for the proposal. I was like, it's been five fucking years, bitch, get it together. <laughs> like, find the time. My husband just agreeing to take care of our kids, like, nonstop for the summer and take them on trips to see our grandparents and all the stuff so I could just be alone and unimpeded. He's a real champ.
0: Ugh. I mean, look like who gets to make any incredible art without a supportive, no, like family presence in their lives. Like,
2: no, I don't know how people do it.
0: Right. And also the fact that like doing work like this is not sumptuously capitalized, you know I mean? It's no, like, it's I, a sacrifice.
2: I, 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 I mean, one of the things that really kicked my ass being, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta hurry the fuck up. Not another five years on this is I was working on, um, I did this oral history about the first five women who were on the editorial masthead at Rolling Stone and one of the women died the day before I was supposed to interview her. Oh my God. And she had been the woman who was like the longest serving editor of all of them and I just thought, what don't we know now? And what will we never know? Yeah, oh my God. And 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 her friends did a beautiful job of talking about what an incredible role she played and all of these things and I just... but. It just really struck me like I need to try to excavate these things that I care about, like that I feel a sense of duty towards all these all these people that came before me that made what I do possible, the ways that I find purpose in my life. Mm-hmm. so much has to do with my work, for better or worse um <laughs> but that um and and I want their stories i if if I have a platform to dig into these things, like I fucking owe it to them, mm-hmm. so that we can have a history.
0: Yeah, like you can, you can rattle off the names of women who came before you and say this is why their work is important to me, but the the level of you know, not having those women or their work be examined figures, like I think is a really interesting thing Mm -hmm. as well, right? Like, I knew every artist that you mentioned as having, you know, important work come out in 1975. But have I meaningfully engaged with criticism of those artists work that kind of puts it in the context of the time in which it was produced, that um, lets me really understand what they were, not just, you know, th- the notes they were trying to hit, but like what they were really trying to say with that body of work. And the answer is I have almost nothing for you. Um, and, and
2: most of those, uh, many of those women don't have uh, memoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Linda Ronstadt does, but so much of it is about horses she has loved. And that's the story she wants to tell. And that's great. I love that. laugh at that,
0: but also, man. <laughs>
2: um, and some of them have documentaries, and, and some of them, the legacy we know is so oftentimes, you know, particularly in the case of Betty Davis, who I think is just finally starting to get some due that isn't purely she was Miles Davis's wife. Mm-hmm. And people assume that's why she got to make records. You know, and she was self-producing and she was doing these incredible beautiful outfits that were designed by this guy that then later went on to do LaBelle's outfits and Kiss's outfits and and you know, some of Bowie's suits. And like she was just like out there so far ahead of everybody else that I think she's just starting to have her work and her legacy understood in part because of people like Jamila woods and Solange and folks who have revivified mm-hmm. her work and said this is this is who came before me this is this is someone who endowed me with some creative permission right they cite it yeah, yeah. and and that's just the very beginning like we mm-hmm. can't just like be like okay well Solange has acknowledged this person so now they are mm-hmm. no 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 okay, and then we need some books and we need some deeper scholarship to fully put Betty Davis where her work belongs canonically. We Mm -hmm. need to like crack that fucking nut open and put her in there and not just have it be, here was the famous man that meant we had to pay attention to her.
0: Right. And yeah, it's it's why when I think about sometimes the stereotypical criticism that older generations of feminists have that like younger feminists don't know their history or are not fully clued into what it's taken to get to where we are today. I'm like, yeah, where are they going (laughs) to... Where? What is the means by which we all learn? I mean, yes, you can do your homework and know more about things that happened before you were born, for Mm -hmm. sure. But Mm -hmm. I think that what we're talking about is really, there is no... Starting from the place where others left off if there's no memory.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I came across in in my Betty Davis research, for example, is that she felt really competitive towards Labelle. Labelle were blowing up, and they were also wearing spacesuit kind mm-hmm. of attire, and um, you know, feeling feeling some, maybe kind of squeezed out by the attention that they were getting because their, their records were, were like really coming around right at the same time mm-hmm. and their hits relative. Betty Davis doesn't quite have hits, certainly not to the degree that LaBelle does. But in um, some of these things and, and looking, even going sort of zooming out on that and going, well, there was all these people that were saying, well, there can only be one woman like this, there can only be one artist like this, one and, sexy futurist, like yeah, groundbreaking and, black woman, and, yeah. and it's going to be Patty LaBelle. <laughs> guys. All right, there can only be one, and it makes me also think immediately to you know the sort of like manufactured I- idea of like we can only have Beyonce or Rihanna, mm-hmm. and what one of them is the you know sort of at the the peak, and and that all the different ways, all the different mechanisms. And and things culturally, historically within music, that have perpetuated these totally fucked up ideas that have then shaped women's careers and legacies, um, and and our understanding of them mm-hmm. because there could only be one, and that's thus and thus how it's been for fucking ever, you know, and and how much that shapes our our narrative sense of like who we're inheriting pop music from and and all of that.
0: You talk a little bit about the podcast that you are hosting um, for kcrw this season and where it fits into all of this
2: yes uh so i am the host and producer executive producer of season two of lost notes which is a podcast from kcrw that dives pretty deeply into music music's untold stories that's the tagline uh but sometimes it is uh, the pieces are stories we do know from music's history, but told from a new perspective. And in- that
0: still qualifies as untold in yes, my mind. Yes, for
2: sure. <laughs> the so this season, as we started to like field pitches, and and every episode is like a longer form reported piece or like a, a documentary. So it's not just like two people chatting about an album or something. I think these pitches that we got were very much informed by. What an impact Me Too has had on music and how we're thinking about legacy and, in particular, great men and who's not in this story and why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of pieces that were retrospective in that way. There were fascinating stories from great producers and you know writers like Hanif Abdurraqib did this great episode on Cat Power. Uh, for the nerd in me, it was great, but also it's like. Um, There's not a lot of nerd in me. Is my favorite (laughs) Bob (laughs) Dylan's that um, that that I think there's a lot of stories that are going untold and unreported within music journalism, music media in particular, because like, where can you dig into like a big historic piece that's also kind of a report and that's also probably an essay, and it doesn't have any peg to the news, and maybe the person in the story's been dead for. Fifteen years,
0: or hasn't had a new album out, in yeah, or is just someone who yeah. like is
2: not, you know, not going to heat up that that SEO um, or whatever. <laughs> but these are stories that are still super important, and also like there's just so many music music writers and journalists and producers who are like really a lot of people coming from really different backgrounds and perspectives, and, and being able to bring so much of that into their reporting. It was just. I'm just super stoked, but there's also um, a lot of the episodes aren't just like, oh, we're digging back into history and it's this sort of clear-cut narrative of like, this man's a shit bag. let's cancel him, Mm -hmm. you know? A lot more of it is like, I think the podcast forum and a lot of the reporting that happens on this season and a lot of the women who do the reporting in particular really bring super nuanced perspectives to it. And for me i'm just so like i'm just forever like thirsty for for more of that because that's that's how my brain works
0: i i feel like and maybe please correct me if i have this wrong but i feel that if i were going to pick anyone who is equipped to be a guide through how to think about modern standards and politics and like, how do we expect people to comport themselves (laughs) Um, and apply that to art forms or things that like are so venerated that they've wormed their way into all these corners of culture. It's not just like, oh yeah, throw out your one album or get rid of that DVD and tear up the movie poster, you know. And then we're pure, we're we're karmically pure. Right, exactly. A lot of your work really grapples with what's awful about things we love and what do we love about things that maybe are 95% awful or, you know, not to, mm-hmm. not to affix a percentage, mm-hmm. but you know um, I mean, cause I think there's a positive aspect, right. Of like, Oh, this person was really groundbreaking. And so, you know, you have to understand it was a different time then. And that's why they're so amazing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's like, Oh, it was a different time then. And they are still fucking horrible for this thing that they did. And like trying to parse um, some of that,
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That wasn't a question. I'm just, now I'm rambling. (laughs) more of a comment than a question. But um, Joni Mitchell is is kind of one of the people that's at the centerpiece of the book that I'm working on. And Joni Mitchell in the 70s and beyond is at some points hugely problematic. She's truly a problematic fave (laughs) both nth degree of problematic and nth degree of fave. Um, (laughs) You know, that it was like, she had some really deeply fucked up stuff that she did. And, you know, uh, sort of most famously or infamously is, you know, on uh, her 1977 album, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, she appears in blackface. And it's not just that she appears in blackface on that and and sort of sees herself as someone who can try on blackness and and really considers herself... (laughs) someone who's been so marginalized as a beautiful white woman <laughs> who lives in Bel Air that she she has the the soul of a black man and um she has some super fucked up ideas and does some totally fucked up things and doesn't just wear this doesn't just wear black face on the cover she she goes to parties in Hollywood and tries to pass and thinks it is a sign of how gloriously clever and convincing she is and you just see these pictures and you're like jesus fucking christ jenny so that's why you didn't pick 78 or 9 (laughs) for this book (laughs) i mean but there's but there's parts of what she's what she does kind of immediately after hissing and, and and just some different things there but also she was someone who was like in interviews years later says she doesn't identify with Feminism because she wanted to be a homemaker and she felt most comfortable in the company of men and all these things where you're just like, so as part of what I'm doing is like saying, okay, I believe she's making fundamentally feminist work within Hissing of Summer Lawns because this is an album that describes women's social role and like the sort of the toll that it had on them psych- psychically mm-hmm. that their only realm of power was their own beauty that they could transact on, and to be a, a powerful man's wife, to live in the shadow of a man and whatever he could kind of get.
0: Right, ideas so entrenched and powerful that they are very much still around.
2: Yes, and but at the time, that was absolutely the huge concern of, mm-hmm. of second-wave feminism, particularly right around, like, you know, 75 and, you know, the, the, sort of, uh, the ERA not being ratified and a lot of these, a lot of landmark legislation passes at the dawn of the seventies, but the really big one about, you know, universal childcare and the things that were really starting that, that could have potentially shaped women's lives in an even more major way mm-hmm. are failing and women are still having to encounter so much resistance lots of times at home for these big ideas. So she's, she makes a whole fucking concept record about this at the height of her power you know, the last track on this record is literally three hundred tracks of her voice that she, you know, and self-produces, and that she's using some of the greatest musicians in the world. Something that you can go, okay, th- this is this is feminist work, whether she wants it or not. You <laughs> whether
1: whether, <laughs> whether, you whether like we it or love not. her whole body of work or not, <laughs> no, this moment, this, yeah. this
2: moment, and like kind of going. But what does that also mean when she's really problematic and insisting that she found out about what feminism was when? Um, Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson asked her if she was one. It's like, uh, yeah, no, they're not exactly like a, you know, feminist, second wave evangelical, you know, carrying the good news. I'm sure it wasn't
0: the consciousness raising where that question was No, because also it was like
2: at the time, you know, she's out to dinner with them at the time. They have a bet about which one of them can fuck her first. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I'm sure they super cared about your feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this record is so meaningful to me and the content of this record and also Joni doing all of these things. But also, she had some terrible fucking ideas about the world and the humanity of the people in it and complete blindness to what her whiteness and her wealth entitled her to um, and how she used and utilized that power personally and professionally. Um, And so... While I, I, I mean, that's all, that's all in there. It's mm-hmm. all in there because I can't, I can't just be like, oh, and here's this beautiful thing she did. And I'm just going to cut it off right at this point before I have to fucking <laughs> interrogate her racism, which is deeply inconvenient to this. But that is, to me, that is the, you can't just be blinders on that. it To me, that's not what, what to love something is is to not see it and whether I'm writing about the city of Chicago, which, you know, at times has like felt like such a gift to like have the city that I love that seems to love me back, but there's other people in the city who have really different experiences and their humanity is crushed by this city and that they don't have you know, the, they can't safely move through the city the same way that I did on my bike as twenty eight year old, which is A lot of what my most recent book is about and and I feel like music is sort of the same way like I can't leave the things I love uninterrogated just for the sake of like my (laughs) my convenience yeah
0: convenience yeah yeah right I mean and I think that's that's actually a very nice articulation of how I really feel when people are like like cancel culture is bad, you know? I mean, I I often think people say that because they want to get away with bad behavior, um, not because they actually want to have a complicated conversation that includes the good and the bad and everything in between. And
2: also where you find yourself within that. Right. You know, your your own negligence or your own ignorance or your own co-signing of <laughs>
0: right the fucked up things that like that help you hold on to power like yeah and and I mean I mean that in every possible sense yeah you already talked a little bit about your supportive husband who sounds wonderful but what about your friends who who are the people in your life maybe just pick one who you want to shout out as really um I don't know as really being there for you in maybe some recent and
2: specific way um, I would have to shout out m- one of my long-distance besties, Nora Bronk, who you can go take yoga from here, her, here if you're in L.A., um, who has always been a wild and phenomenal presence in my life the last, like, 14 years. And we met because she was uh, dating my roommate. And, like, the first time I hung out with her, I remember she was wearing... Cut off control top pantyhose is like part of her outfit, like on the outside. Amazing. She she was a big proponent for a while of wearing her underwear outside of her clothes. <laughs> She's like an incredible person, and part of the reason I love to come to LA is to be with, to be with her. But that she is someone who has called me on my bullshit when necessary, and also just someone who, when I when I need that like that fuck those people support you know when when you feel done done wrong she's the she's the person that i call but she's also someone who the last time i was here in la and we had like a nice like nighttime hang by the fire pit of my curious airbnb mm-hmm. with the outdoor fire pit she was like you know you've basically had this exact same complaint for 10 years like maybe you should just like this is just how it is dude <laughs> like kind of just get over it. <laughs> and I was like, "Thank you. Thank you for putting putting these things into perspective."
0: The 10-year perspective. Yeah, it was great. Okay, favorite snacks.
2: Right now, <laughs> big fan of the uh, Trader Joe's peanut butter pretzel, mm. like they're like capsules. Yep, I know exactly and what it, you mean. It, it makes the inside of my mouth feel like cardboard. I don't <laughs> fucking care. I'll eat a whole bag. <laughs> it
0: is really so good. <laughs>
2: So salty and delicious. So industrial dog food, kind of. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it's also a treat I can give to my dog.
0: Amazing. Okay, and and finally, where can people find you and your work in the digital space?
2: I'm on Twitter. God. Oh, why? 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 Don't know. I am on. I am on Instagram. I am kind of boring and old on Instagram. But I think the good way to find me is I have an occasional newsletter. Mm. I would like to have more spaces where that aren't um, mediated by like a grim surveillance capitalism giant
0: algorithm, too. yeah,, Damn.
2: yeah. and so um so I'm trying to sort of list towards tiny newsletter,
0: yeah and can they find that on your website?
2: They you can you can go to my website and it is also linked through my Twitter. Though I just don't advise just if you it, can not be on Twitter. Is your website jessicahopper.com? It is jessicahopper.org. jessicahopper.com dot org. is the Jessica Hopper that she's like a dance instructor. She's also in Playboy and she also made a cameo in the Red Shoe Diaries. She not has had you. A, not me. <laughs> different life <laughs> Okay.org. <laughs> Jessicahopper.org for all of your digital Jessica Hopper. Amazing. Needs. Amazing. And my books are out in the world and are pretty easy to
0: find. uh Going immediately to the music section to look for you and
2: get excited. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh my gosh. As as a longtime listener to the pod, this just <laughs> delights me to no end
0: we
1: do not talk about music on this show.
2: I know.
0: I really, speaking with her made me realize that too, of like, this is an area where we really need to improve and interview some, um, people working in music, people like whose mode of expression is music. Like, as you pointed out earlier, like ever since we, uh, realized we had to pay to license song content, (laughs) we've, we've featured less music. (laughs)
1: Yeah, as the as the holder, as the person who handles that process, please never mention songs on this show. There is like a fair use clip length or whatever, but like yeah, I agree. It's I'm not I'm not risking it. Not risking it. Um Dangerous territory. You know, more women talking about all sorts of things. Yes. Um Okay. Well
0: I'll see you on the internet. I'll hear you on the internet, something like that.
1: Listen, Anne. I might even see you at the beach. Ugh. I hear you're turning a book into Oh my God, stop. I'm-
0: <laughs> How's the writing going? This is not even a joke that this is like my book alone. I feel deeply attacked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you can find us many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple podcast spotify stitcher we're on all your favorite platforms subscribe rate review you know the drill you can call us back you can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943 that's 714-681-CYGF you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by Robin original music composed by Carolyn Penny Packer-Riggs our logos are by Kenesha Need we're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf where Sophie Carter-Kahn does all of our social our associate producer is Jordan Bailey and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac